Few things are harder than the mission of raising your kids. At The Dad Project, we get experienced dads to reveal what's worked for them, offering practical, time-tested advice. Being a successful dad is tough, and we're here to help you get it done. Welcome to The Dad Project. In this episode of The Dad Project, Ashton Ellis talks about the starting point for being a great dad, namely being a great husband first. Ashton is a development professional for a college in Michigan. He and his wife have six children. This is a talk about the spousal relationship as the first priority of a dad. There's an old commercial about a family on vacation. Dad, mom, and two kids are at the top of a mountain with no way to get down. Dad gives mom a look and then flings himself down the side, rolling and crashing as he goes. Mom looks at the kids and says, race you to the, race you to the bottom, and flings herself down the side, crashing after dad. The kids, of course, just roll their eyes. They've seen this before. I have no idea what the advertisers were selling, but the message they presented was clear. This dad and mom are united, and their kids knew it. It's a silly example, maybe, but I think it illustrates an important point. Kids need to know their parents are united. Kids need to see their parents as a unit, not merely as partners. Let's consider some definitions of partnership and unity to tease out the differences. Partnerships are defined as an arrangement in which two or more individuals share the profits and liabilities of a business venture. Various arrangements are possible. All partners might share liabilities and profits equally, or some partners may have limited liability. Do we think of our marriage as an arrangement to share liabilities and profits equally? After all, a lot of people talk about a 50-50 marriage. The details can be kind of funny. I know one couple that divides housework by the time it takes. If it's two hours of work, then each couple takes an hour's worth of chores. I guess there's no incentive for finishing early. Another couple trades the most distasteful stuff back and forth so neither gets stuck cleaning the bathrooms all the time. I'm told there's no official accounting, no list or rotation schedule, but it's interesting that both partners have agreed to this arrangement and seem to expect performance. Equal? Yes. Fair? Maybe. Generous? I wonder. Of course, there can be other arrangements. Some partners may have limited liability. Now, a liability is a debt or obligation. These are things we owe other people. What do I owe my wife? Standard wedding vows give a clue. To have and to hold, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, until death do us part. I owe her love, unconditionally. Any marriage that tries to put a limit on love is in bad shape. But husbands put limits on their marriage responsibilities all the time. I don't change diapers. I don't do housework. If my wife needs help, she'll tell me. Or I need some me time in my man cave. Don't bother me. There may be reasons for all this, but is this really the operating principle we want to live by? Is this how we want our son to treat his wife? Better yet, is this how we want our son-in-law to treat our daughter? If this is what she sees from us, she might think it's the best she can get we can do better. In the business world, the most successful people are often those who anticipate the needs of others. One high-performance guru likes to talk about becoming a merchant of wow. 
the kind of person who over-delivers all the time. Such a person is always thinking about the client, who they are, what they want, and designing experiences that knock their socks off. One of my favorite examples is of a business turnaround consultant. He scans the earnings performance pages of backsliding companies looking for clients. When he finds one he thinks he can help, he sends the CEO an enormous crate. Inside is a five-foot-long, specially-made broadsword. Think Mel Gibson in the movie Braveheart. With the sword, there is a handwritten note from the consultant that says something like, I know everybody is after you right now, but I believe in you. I've got your back. If you want to talk strategy, give me a call. You can imagine the response rate. What would it take to create a marriage of wow? Maybe it's taking a few minutes each day to think about my wife. Scan the calendar. Any important events coming up? Does she need help scheduling a babysitter? Arranging school rides when I am on my next business trip? How long has it been since we went out on a date? Why not add the next four date nights to our calendar so we know what's coming? Go ahead and make the reservation. Buy the tickets. Order the gift. Today, show some initiative and make a commitment. The most important person in my life is my wife. She needs to know that, feel that, and believe that. Love certainly includes sweet words, but more importantly, it is shown with deeds. I cannot be better at winning the affection of strangers than I am at winning the heart of my wife. Now let's consider unity. One definition is something whole or complete that is composed of separate parts, a mutual agreement, harmony, or concord. Put another way, unity is what happens when two become one. A unity is a new reality in the world. Before marriage, there were two people pursuing their own ends. After marriage, there is a unity pursuing its own end. A unity is unique because all combinations are different. Wives aren't fungible. I remember watching a television show when a kid meets his mom's ex-boyfriend. The man grumbles something like, if things had gone differently, you might have been my son. But that's crazy. If the ex-boyfriend and the mom had a son, he wouldn't be the same son the mom had with the dad. The singularity of each unity is what makes it powerful and attractive. Kids know this instinctively. They sense that what gives dad and mom their power is their unity of heart and mind. In healthy families, kids know that it doesn't matter whether you ask dad or mom. The answer is the same. Both parents are in agreement. In struggling families, the dynamics are different. Maybe the parents don't agree on discipline, so the kids play them off each other. Maybe the parents don't agree on finances, so there is constant tension in the house. When kids see their parents disunited, they perceive them as weak. Weak people can't lead. Weak people can't inspire. Our children need to see a strong marriage built on trust and respect. If they do, they will grow to maturity in an environment free from the tensions, suspicions, and criticisms that make so many workplaces toxic. They won't accept dysfunction as normal. They will choose better friends. They will choose better spouses. They will know that peace and happiness are possible, very possible, since they know what it takes to obtain them. So if we agree that unity is a great gift to the children, what are some practical resolutions? Well, number one, 
don't fight in front of the kids, ever. It throws everything into disorder. Work out a gesture or phrase ahead of time with your wife so that when it's used, you both know to wait until you can talk in private. You will never regret maintaining your wife's authority and integrity within the family. Number two, always support your wife. A husband with 11 kids once said, even if your wife is wrong, if you support her, then you are right. I'll say this again slowly. Even if your wife is wrong, if you support her, then you are right. Sometimes your wife will make an implicit call for help when interacting with the kids. The answer should always be yes. Why? Because a call for help is always an invitation for unity. Be with me. Come with me over here. All the problems can be solved if you are with your wife in unity. Number three, always respect your wife. As kids get older, they often try to assert their independence by challenging mom. Don't tolerate it. Kids need to see dad model love and deference to mom so that they understand that she is in union with dad, not a junior partner. A show of disrespect to mom is a show of disrespect to dad. It questions dad's judgment in choosing mom. Sometimes I find myself reminding the kids, hey look, I chose mom, I accepted you. Kids need to know that for dad, mom comes first. Of course, it's impossible to have unity within marriage without ongoing communication between the spouses. But we have to be careful. It's easy to let unimportant details dominate. One study shows couples with kids talk to each other about 35 minutes a week total. And most of this time is just on logistics. When will you be there? Don't forget to pick up the milk. We can't be too busy. We have to make time for more. We all know from having kids that it's one thing to speak and quite another to be understood. If we want our wives to understand us, we must first understand them, how they think, what they value, and most importantly, how they experience love. Two of my favorite books are The Temperament God Gave You and The Five Love Languages. The Temperaments book explains the four classic personality types, choleric, melancholic, sanguine, and phlegmatic. It describes how each temperament reacts differently to the same stimuli and how pairings of different temperaments can cause conflict. The Temperaments book is a great way to understand you and your wife's default setting and how to work through them toward a healthy marriage. One of the best date nights we've had was sitting on our back porch, sipping a glass of wine and taking a temperaments quiz together. The results confirmed we are not the same. Here's a sample quiz question. Each response corresponds to a different temperament. Sirens begin to whirl behind you when you realize that a police car is pulling you over. You think, A, his radar gun couldn't possibly be correct. I was hardly going over the speed limit. The cars in front of me were speeding. B, Oh no, I've heard of people getting arrested for this. C, was I driving fast? What's the speed limit on this road anyway? D, do I have my wallet? Where did I put that car registration? We had a lot of fun arguing about the right answer. Knowing your wife's temperament lets you put a name on the reactions you experience. But a temperament is more than just a label. It's not a conclusion to a process that limits a person to their instincts. It's the beginning of a journey that helps you anticipate her thoughts and reactions.
Knowing her temperament is a huge help because it indicates where conflicts will arise and where agreement should be easy. But that's only true if you know yourself well. What are your preferences and defaults? Where could you improve? Whatever the temperament pairing, the key is this. People can change. Relationships can improve. We can choose to work harder becoming more understandable to our wives, not by sticking to our guns, but by speaking a language that resonates with them. The five love languages focuses more on how people experience love. Using the concept of a love tank, the author says that each person needs it filled, but each tank accepts only certain kinds of fuel. Unsurprisingly, many married couples have different fill-up requirements. Conflicts often arise when a well-meaning spouse tries to fill up the other's tank with the wrong kind of love, usually the kind the giver, not the receiver, wants. For example, a husband pays his wife compliments because he likes to receive words of affirmation. But the words go in one ear and out the other because she needs physical touch. All the love notes in the world won't do near as much good as one long embrace in the kitchen. We can't cut corners. A passionate kiss won't work if what she really wants is an act of service like washing the dishes, folding the laundry, or changing a diaper. We may be tempted to think that what we like should be sufficient. After all, it's all love, just different types. But that's like putting diesel in a gas-powered car because the line is shorter and the diesel is cheaper. Both are fuel, but only one will get you where you want to go. We need to train ourselves to do the things our wife needs to feel loved. After all, a happy wife means a happy life. So far, we've been talking about intentional communication. But what are we communicating unintentionally? If you want to read a sobering account of how to alienate your wife without even trying, I recommend doing a Google search for the article, She Divorced Me Because I Left Dishes by the Sink. Here's the author. Sometimes I leave used drinking glasses by the kitchen sink just inches away from the dishwasher. It isn't a big deal to me now. It wasn't a big deal to me when I was married, but it was a big deal to her. Every time she'd walk into the kitchen and find a drinking glass by the sink, she moved incrementally closer to moving out and ending our marriage. For years, the author admits he thought the issue was stupid and offered all kinds of reasons to justify his behavior. I may want to use it again. I don't care if a glass is sitting by the sink unless guests are coming over. I will never care about a glass sitting by the sink, ever. But as his marriage crumbled under the weight of so many arguments, he finally got an insight. There's only one reason I will ever stop leaving that glass by the sink, a lesson I learned much too late, because I love and respect my wife, and it really matters to her. Not only did his words and actions not fill his wife's love tank, they actually communicated contempt for her. Back to the author. I understand that when I leave that glass there, it hurts her, literally causes her pain, because it feels to her like I just said, hey, I don't respect you or value your thoughts and opinions. Not taking four seconds to put my glass in the dishwasher is more important to me than you are. He realized that the issue isn't about when to put a dirty glass in the dishwasher. The issue is whether he is willing to engage in a meaningful act of love and sacrifice. He says, I don't have to understand why she cares so much about that stupid glass. I just have to understand and respect that she does. Then caring about her equals putting glass in dishwasher. 
I'm sure we're all thinking about our, our own version of this argument. Hopefully, we are resolving to overcome our own objection and do what's best for our wife. When it comes to our marriage, we want to be masters, not disasters at our relationship. A lot of this depends on how we choose to view our marriage. According to Dr. John Gottman of the University of Washington, the best predictor of how good a marriage is is to have someone ask you about the history of your relationship with your wife. What kind of story do you tell? This simple story of us predicts which relationships succeed and which fail. Here's Dr. Gottman. Our best prediction of the future of a relationship came from a couple's story of us. It's an ever-changing final appraisal of the relationship and your spouse's character. Some people were really developing a story of us that was very negative, in which they described all the problems in the relationship. They really emphasized what was missing. Masters did just the opposite. They minimized the negative qualities that all of us have, and they cherished their spouse's positive qualities. They nurtured gratitude instead of resentment. Most important part of a relationship conversation is the beginning. 96% of the time, Dr. Gottman can predict the outcome of a conversation within the first three minutes. He says, negativity feeds on itself and makes the conversation stay negative. We also did seven years of research on how masters repair that negativity. One of the most powerful things is to say, hey, this isn't all your fault. I know that part of this is me. Let's talk about what's me and what's you. Accepting responsibility is huge for repair. Masters also know how to listen. When their spouse has a problem, they drop everything and listen non-defensively with empathy. In really bad relationships, people are communicating, baby, when you're in pain, when you're unhappy, when you hurt, I'm not going to be there for you. You deal with it on your own. Find somebody else to talk to because I don't like your negativity. I'm busy. I'm really involved with the kids. I'm really involved with my job. Whereas masters have the model of, when you're unhappy, even if it's with me, the world stops and I listen. The big takeaway from Gottman's research, choose to see the positive. It can cause a cascade. It's fuel for your story of us. You'll probably start relationship conversations on a good note. You'll admire your wife. And I will add, your children will benefit richly. Kids need to know that they belong to something bigger, stronger, more long-lasting than themselves. Your story of us is the first chapter they read of your family's history. The best gift fathers can give their children isn't a big house, an expensive college education, or even more one-on-one -on -one time. The best gift a father can give his children is the certainty that he loves their mother with every fiber of his being. If we do this, then our life is a success. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to The Dad Project. If this talk was valuable to you, please go to our website at dadproject.net and make a voluntary one-time or recurring donation to help support our operations. Any amount helps. Catch you next time at The Dad Project.